Welcome, everyone, to a new episode of This Week in Intelligent Investing. Great to have you with us and terrific to welcome my co-hosts, Phil Ordway and Elliot Turner. We have a great discussion ahead. Phil, over to you. Thanks, John. So this week, I thought we'd talk about something that came up recently in two different contexts for me personally. Uh, One was in discussions I've been having with a company where I won't name the company because uh, it's something we might be buying or selling soon. And as you guys know, I don't want to give anything resembling explicit investment advice, but we can talk in generalities about it for sure, because that's really all that matters. It's a small, fairly recent spinoff that produces a a commodity, like a global commodity that we all use. Um, And it does have a, a cost advantage in that industry. And the industry structure is actually somewhat favorable in that for like 10 years, capacity was coming in uh, ahead of demand and now capacity is going out uh, at a at a pace greater than demand. But demand is actually shrinking and demand is very likely to continue shrinking, um, in my opinion, at a relatively slow rate for a long time. But uh, even the company uh, acknowledges that demand is shrinking. So that was kind of shocking factor number one was like, I would say at least nine times out of 10, when you have that kind of circumstance where the company is clearly on the decline curve of its life cycle, uh, they're in denial about that and trying to come up with rationalizations to say that, oh, this is just a cyclical downturn or we've got some levers to pull to resuscitate demand or whatever. And it's like, no, no, this this company fully admits that demand is is declining and, and, and likely to continue declining for the foreseeable future. Um, and then no, the, the second thing that popped into mind was the news. Uh, I think it was officially a couple of days ago. I don't know when exactly it is, but it, it, you guys probably saw this. Netflix uh, just recently did or is about to any day now ship its last ever DVD rental by mail. Uh, so for anyone who's too young to remember, because it's shockingly been 25 years, I believe this started in 1998. Um They've been mailing physical DVDs, which was a thing, a little disc that you had to put into a machine before we had this streaming stuff. And so you had to actually get the physical DVD. And, you know, you used to rent other forms of physical media before that. And Netflix thought it would be better to do it with no late fees and uh, no limits and just do it all direct to consumer by sending these discs in the mail. And that was a great business uh, that obviously launched the the foundation of the powerhouse that now is Netflix. And for the first five, 10, probably 15 years, I would say at least, um, it was a growing business and it was a great business and it was a high margin business. And it was again, a a total cash cow. But I would say sometime around 10 years ago, uh, it became pretty clear. It might've been even 12 or 15 years ago. It became pretty clear that that was a a declining industry, right? It became clear that Netflix Netflix itself was making a bet on streaming and was betting the company on streaming. It became clear that the rest of the industry um, was, was going to inevitably head that direction. And it was just a superior business model. It was a classic tale of technological progress. And I remember at the time, it was a little bit later, it was around 2015, 2016. Um, I actually had an investment uh, first in the stock, which proved to be mediocre at best, but then in the unsecured bonds, which were kind of a home run uh, in Redbox, the DVD rental kiosks that some people might remember that were outside a lot of uh, physical stores. And those actually still exist as well. But again, it has been in absolutely secular, not cyclical decline 
uh, for many, many years. And the thesis was that they were going to be able to milk a lot of beautiful cash flow out of that thing in the decline phase of its life. And sure enough, the the management of Redbox was totally feckless and sold at the worst possible moment to Apollo. And details are somewhat hard to come by, but for a good number of years, they had publicly traded debt and you could get the numbers. And uh, Apollo made an absolute killing doing exactly what everyone with any common sense thought would happen, which was just milk the beautiful cash flow coming out of the DVD rentals and redistribute it or recapitalize the capital structure and all was well. Um, so the question I have for you guys, and I'll I'll uh, I'll open this up because I have a couple of other points to make as we go through it. But how do you guys think about valuation and capital allocation in declining industries? Because as I've been talking to the CEO, CFO, VP of corporate affairs, investor relations folks at this first company that I mentioned that makes the uh, that makes the global commodity uh, with a with a bit of a cost advantage, but but clearly facing long term decline. Uh, they're very thoughtful about it, but they are genuinely struggling about what to do. So they have a buyback program in place um, and they are pretty rigorous about holding all of their capital spending and all of their capital allocation to a a return hurdle. So they want a 20% pre-tax return on anything they do. And they actually calculate a range of intrinsic value for the stock. And if it's not 20% the 20% below the low end of that range, they're not going to repurchase any shares, which first of all, is just music to my ears because that's obviously how it should be done. And so few companies actually do it, but it's just fantastic. They also apply the same threshold to any sort of internal spending, any sort of M&A that they would consider. Um, so that that's wonderful. But then it comes down to, they've actually paid down a lot of debt recently. Um, I wouldn't mind seeing them pay down a little bit more debt, but that's a bit of a, a digression. I, I think for them, they see it as stable. For me, it's like in a flat to declining industry, I don't think there is such a thing as too little debt. Uh, but then it comes to the dividend, which is really kind of a point of contention because a lot of companies see it as a sacred cow and they do they, they make dividend payments for all the wrong reasons. Um, in this case, the company, I think, sees correctly that a dividend could be a good thing because you're trying to take capital out of a declining business. And the best thing you could do is a kind of a slow motion liquidation. And I made the point to them, you guys have all heard this sermon before, that if we just banned the word dividend, the term dividend, and replaced it with liquidating distribution, people would think a lot more clearly about what it is and what's happening. And that is exactly what's happening, right? You're taking a portion of your after-tax net worth and paying out a liquidation and you are liquidating and distributing the proceeds of your company and shrinking the size of your company by paying it out to the people that own the company. And if we owned a small private enterprise together, that would make total sense and that would be what we do. But in bigger companies and particularly private companies, it's like, you know, it's 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 not allowed. It's seen as some sort of death march or some sort of bad thing when it's actually a very rational thing to do. So this company did just recently uh, hike its recurring dividend, pay a special dividend, and announce a bigger share repurchase program. And my advice to them has been to study companies that have done this sort of thing really well and to certainly study the companies that have done it very poorly. I mean, we talked quite a bit about Sears Holdings, where you had a very, very, very bright, successful fund manager pulling the strings and buying back a ton of stock at $100 a share and you know, within a relatively short period of time. Uh, just march it right over the edge of the cliff and it's it's gone. And you know, I think there's no argument to be made that billions and billions of dollars of capital wasn't wasted buying back those shares at too high a price. Um, but again, 
know, the other interesting thing to consider here, and, and this is where I want your thoughts, is how much do you guys consider the rate of decline and the future forecastability of the industry versus a lot of people, and for partly good reason, I think, just say, oh, if it's a declining industry, I'm just not even going to touch it. It's too hard. You know, I'm out kind of thing. Um, you know, in this case, my view of it would be that the industry sort of like the the DVDs, actually much longer tail than the DVDs. Like, I don't see a scenario where this this particular commodity completely disappears. Um, I think it, it's where you have to really test your assumptions. So what I would do in this sort of scenario would be to go in and say, all right, if if the top line or the 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 quantity demand decreases at a rate of single digit percentages year over year, we can sustain that for basically the rest of my lifetime and be in pretty good shape because the company will produce so much cash and be in such good financial condition that the investment will will work out well. Um, but if if you start to get into a scenario where you're surprised by how badly things have gone and, and it starts to decline at 10 or 15% a year, that ice cube can melt pretty quickly, right? And things can get ugly in a hurry. So anyway, I'll stop there. I want to get your general thoughts and reactions. Then I have some more uh, framework to work through. Yeah, I think this is one of the most interesting topics. And you could start at the top with this idea, you know, does a company itself know it's in decline or are they going to stay in denial the whole time? Will they actually acknowledge a decline? Um, I think that makes a very big difference than in those cases where um, it's easy to think the turnarounds around the corner the whole way down. And then when it's too late, you start reacting to it. Um, and, you know, I, I guess by definition, invest at least when there's some degree of growth. So I consciously avoid industries where I feel they are in decline. I will seek out situations where I think change will happen slower than the market's expecting. There are some industries where I'd say they're priced for decline, though I don't believe a decline is inevitable. Uh, you know, and I think there are interesting examples. I mean, the music industry, their revenues peaked in 1999, bottomed in 2014. And then it's a growth industry again. There are certain kind of assets that potentially could be repositioned. So from an investment perspective, I find that a little more interesting than when, yeah, it's just an asset that is going to decline and there's not necessarily going to be some sort of residual or terminal value in the case. Um, I think the company you described is super interesting because not only are they cognizant about their decline, but they have a capital allocation framework um, they have a valuation in mind, which is more than I'd say 99% of companies out there have of themselves. And just to be able to say, you know, repurchases are creative at this level versus dividends being more appropriate for our shareholders, I think says a lot about management as stewards. Yeah, and agreed. so that truly stands out. You know, you think about Bed Bath and their repurchases the whole way down. They may have thought they were in a declining industry, but perhaps were an island of strength that would endure. Um, they'd even, you know, put out a lot of consultant consultancy jargon along the way about, you know, omni-channel and repositioning and decline was, uh, I think, exacerbated and accelerated because they didn't exactly position well for a longer term, more protracted decline. They tried to shake things up and yep. lost a lot of flexibility by levering up to repurchase before it was clear exactly how the industry 
might shake out for a few years. Um, so that's the biggest challenge with decline. It's not so much, I think the valuation is probably the easiest part once you just acknowledge decline and you have a appreciation for a rate of atrophy. And I do think those assets tend to assume that the atrophy is going to be worse than the uh, future will be. You know, I think AOL about 20 years post peak AOL was still spitting off well into the nine figures of free cash flow because people just don't cancel services they pay for. Um, you know, the morality of still charging such people is neither here nor there, but like <laughs> the decline phase, it could be quite drawn out. Um, but what you don't really know, I mean, in AOL's case, when they'd come back to markets as a publicly traded company following the the Time Warner, you know, inevitable reorg, um, they decided that they were going to use the proceeds of the decline in order to invest into more uh, lucrative, forward-looking businesses. And that meant paying very high valuations for things with a greater degree of uncertainty. And that makes it really tough for that kind of company to get an investor base. And it makes it really um, unpredictable and Obviously, they inevitably sold to Verizon instead of actually seeing through on that plan because the market wasn't willing to let them see it through after a couple of years of not showing results. So this is all a long way of saying is it really comes down to management and how clear and honest they are with the nature of their industry, their stated intents for the future, and how they plan to treat the situation. Now, the, the one... Um, slight caveat I'd put out is if the company does have some sort of opportunity or plan to reposition their assets, um, like the music labels kind of had done in the uh, shift to streaming, you could end up with something very interesting, but you need a lot of faith. Um, you're, you're really making a leap of faith that management's going to do the right thing. So I'll, I'll leave my spiel at that for now. Yeah, before I forget, Elliot, you just raised a great point that I should have probably put in the uh, introductory comments, which you reminded me about with Bed Bath and Beyond, right? Because correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't the story for years and years that like Bye Bye Baby was going to kind of save their bacon? And it's you see that all the time, right? Where like a company in a clearly declining phase tries to pretend like this one little segment, this one asset, this one subsidiary is going to be the savior. And it just allows you to live in total denial for a long period of time, right? You heard about it with Sears forever, right? Like Sears was going to be saved by shop your way or buy your way or whatever it was called. And so that was almost like used as double justification for starving the stores of needed CapEx and of the broader industry and buying back shares. Um, and, and I think it's truly deadly. So that was one of the things that I liked about this pure commodity producer uh, that that doesn't have any distraction. They have no other subsidiaries. They have no other lines of business. They have one thing and they are very clear about what that one thing is and where it's going. And they're not in denial about that fact. They may, we'll, we'll see where they end up shaking out because it's going to all the, the final decisions on capital allocation are going to make all the difference, but it's just so dangerous when you're like, Oh yeah, this, this thing that's like 90% of our net worth is on fire and burning to the ground, but let's focus on the other 10 and pretend like that's the only thing that matters. And you see it all the time. Yeah, that is basically what happened with Bed Bath. Um, but they also, I think, 
weren't even, in some ways you could say they over-focused and weren't focused enough on uh, Bye Bye Baby because they'd spent so much effort trying to build out this omni-channel offering and they kind of confused the brand of Bye Bye Baby. I think the Toys R Us bankruptcy kind of threw them for a loop thinking their growth was going to be a little easier to harvest than it otherwise uh, would have been because Toys R Us Kids was the only other scaled player um, yep. in the space. So it was, it was one big giant mess in a lot of ways. Um, and I think that's part of what clouded management's judgment on the way down. And they had two CEOs, right? One was focused on real estate. One was focused on operations and right. real estate kind of got out of focus once you shifted from no longer having to expand your store footprint to having to optimize it. And, you know, I, I think it was just a, a messy situation, but that's part of the problem with decline because it is inherently messy if you don't see it coming, if you don't understand the nature of it, um, if you siphon cash flow to try to find growth along the way and it just doesn't happen, like you could destroy a lot of what could have been very harvestable, realizable value for shareholders. Absolutely. Um, and then, you know, there's still something of value left behind, but you don't even get to realize it because you encumber it too much. Yep. No, hundred percent. And that's why I said earlier, I, I would be completely okay with running essentially an unlevered balance sheet in something where even the most optimistic person would probably say that the top line or the, the, the quantity, the volume of production was likely to be lower in five and 10 years. Right. I mean, if you're going to carry debt in that sort of scenario, I think you need to be very, very careful about it. And they are, uh, it, the debt level in this company in particular right now is not, uh, a disaster waiting to happen in my opinion, but when they were spun off, it was kind of a classic garbage barge spinoff where the parent, you know, this was 10 or 15% of the parents were consolidated revenue, something like that. And they put way too much debt on the subsidiary at spinoff in my opinion. And if the management team hadn't kind of pulled a rabbit out of a hat and shrunk the debt by over a third in the first six quarters of life as an independent company, I certainly would have never been interested it's it's interesting to think if perhaps maybe some more mature businesses should think about declining. Sorry, some more growthy businesses should think about buying some declining ones in order to harvest the cash flows and treat it as stewards through decline, find assets that they could repurpose and grow out of that. I remember a Murray Stahl paper that I'd read, you know, well after he'd written it, but it was about like, what would you do with eBay stock in 2003, which was like the post.com bubble, like wave of enthusiasm in the next uh, growthy assets in the space. And like eBay had this obscene valuation in 2003, which I think I, I hadn't realized because I was like too busy in college at the time. Um, and one of his suggestions was they could use their really uh, high price stock to acquire very like, you know, inexpensive stock that spits off a lot of free cash flow and then use that free cash flow to kind of like push them forward. Uh, yeah, it's funny you're jumping forward. That was one of the things that I was going to tie up at the end was that I am still very drawn by the idea, which again is not sort of an introductory level class, right? I think you need to be very smart and very sharp and experienced to pull it off. But there's just so much value that you can harvest if you're an intelligent buyer of attractively priced declining assets, right? I mean, if some other media company had bought the Netflix DVD rental business 25 years ago, or if 
you know, my little independent investment fiefdom had been able to take Redbox private and harvest the DVD rental cash flows for the last eight or nine years instead of Apollo. Uh, you know, it it works really, really well. And and you know, you, you do have to be careful, right? Because if if you get into a scenario where you're wrong, the margin of safety you thought you had can disappear in a big hurry. So, uh, you know, but I I do think it's a very very attractive way you can you can harvest assets, you can harvest cash flow and repurpose both of them into a better more current use where the returns on capital are good and where, you know, things are copacetic in the future, you know, maybe you have another 5, 10, 25 years ahead where the 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 repurposed assets and the new uses of cash flow are in a really good home and it's just a wonderful way to do it. But that said, I mean, this is where I kind of want your take on valuation too. I generally want uh, if it's a mature, stable kind of GDP plus kind of growth business, uh, I generally want a cash generation profile where I feel like I can get half or more of my cost basis, my purchase price uh, out of the company in true free cash flow in the first five to six to seven years, certainly not more than like a decade, right? I too, unless it's a really, really attractive growth story where I feel really strongly about where the company and the industry are going to be beyond year 10, I do get really nervous when you have these tiny little cash flows, these little baby coupons that are coming in or nothing, you're burning cash for the first period of years. And then, but don't worry, you know, all this value that's out there in year 17, you know, really makes the investment case. And and I think that logic applies even more so in declining industries. So in this case, I would be pretty nervous if you couldn't get essentially all of your basis, all of your purchase price returned to you in in allocatable free cash flow in the first five or six or seven years, right? So, I mean, again, we're talking about very significant double digit current yields on free cash flow to make that kind of math work. And I I think it is just a a, a requirement, a fact of life. Absolutely. And do you think in such a situation, like there's a difference between companies with tangible versus intangible asset bases? Oh yeah, sure. I mean, you know, the the good news about having a big intangible asset base is it's probably going to require less upkeep, less capital spending. I mean, again, so if you have a good view of where margins are going to going to stabilize or where they're going to trend as the top line is flat or declining, that can give you a much easier forecasting period, I would say, for lack of a better term. Um, so, you know, it, it, when you have lots of old machinery or equipment or whatever, databases, something that needs to be maintained and you have to keep spending every year to just keep it in a decent place, that's not a great scenario, right? So yeah, intangibles, you know, as in most cases are generally a better asset to have on the Although books. maybe the counterpoint is intangibles, their revenue base could slip away a little faster. Yeah, I look, I mean, I would say the rule of thumb that I hold to there is if your revenue base came out of nowhere and grew really quickly, it mm-hmm. means almost it means almost by definition it can go away more quickly, right? So like this commodity that I'm talking about that where I'm not naming the company, this is something that people have been using for hundreds of years, millennia. And so I don't see technology completely displacing it overnight. That's just not going to happen, right? So to me, the only question is, is this going to shrink at 2% a year or 10% a year? And so the 
if it shrinks at 2% or something better than that, everything will be fine. You can do that math. You can create a very simple little model in your mind or a spreadsheet and say, okay, here's how this is going to wind down over the next 10 years. And if that happens over 10 years, I will have 150% of my cost basis returned to me in dividends and repurchases over that period of time. And everything will be great. Um, if it's 10% a year, that starts to be a problem in a big hurry, right? Those numbers really compound in a negative way very quickly. And that is actually, by the way, what happened to Redbox uh, briefly was around 2015, 2016, they had a little, uh, a couple quarters where the decline really accelerated and it did hit double digits. Um, and people for good reason freaked out and the stock fell 50% and then it ended up getting taken private. Um you know, by the way, an interesting corollary to that is at the time, Redbox also owned Coinstar, which was the the little kiosk vending machines where you put your physical pocket change in and it gives you a gift card at a at 90 cents on the dollar or whatever it is. And uh, so that's another declining industry, but it was actually pretty flat, uh, believe it or not. People's physical uh, coins were actually declining at uh you know, like 1% a year or less in, in most cases. Um, and so the combination of those two declining businesses was actually pretty robust because, you know, I would view the the way people have used physical coins uh, and paper currency as, I mean, that's been in decline. It's probably going to continue to be in decline. I have a hard time getting to where physical currency is completely gone in the next 10 or 20 years, that seems really unlikely to me. So it's something where if I could, you know, cook up a model, a financial model, basically, where, you know, if if paper currency declines at 2% a year, that's, that's good. And that works for us. If it declines at 10% a year, that's a problem, right? I mean, that's the kind of framework and scenario analysis I think you have to do. And that's the kind of situation where like um, it's really you need high margins and you need the capacity to rein in the cost structure <laughs> as you yeah. go. If you have too high a fixed cost base, like what looks like lush cash flows on the way out could rapidly disappear. Yeah, the other thing, that's a great point. And the other thing I would say is not only do you need that and, and this company that, that I'm referring to and certainly the Netflix DVD business, both had pretty attractive margins. I mean, they were both done at scale. Uh, both done by very shrewd operators, right? I mean, they, their operations, their manufacturing operations, so to speak, was very good, uh, very sharp. And uh, But one thing that's really key that you can't overlook in, in any state is the industry structure. Um, so, you know, again, in Netflix's case, who else was renting DVDs? I, I mean, I, I guess there were a few mom and pop rental stores, physical stores, but that's a pretty inferior model for reasons we know. There was Redbox that we just talked about. Uh, and those those that supply was shrinking. So you have to be really careful. Like I said, this commodity producer that I just mentioned, um, you know, certainly for the prior five years, likely for the prior 10 coming into COVID, had actually been seeing a little bit of capacity added to the industry, which was a huge problem, right? I mean, you just it's really hard to fight that battle. I would want no part of that. If that were, if the industry structure weren't favorable, I just don't think I'd be interested in the slightest. So, uh, but now the the whole thing is flipped, and people are actually pulling capacity out, which is actually good for the incumbent and good for the low cost operator. Because if demand shrinks by, let's say demand shrinks by five percent this year, and capacity falls by six percent this year, and all of that capacity is coming out from higher cost producers and not you, that's a good thing for you. 
right? And you just have to make sure you have that balance, right? And it sounds basic and it sounds obvious, but it's amazing how many industries and how many companies, you know, kind of screw that up or get that backwards. Well, I think, you know, just to echo what you guys have said, I mean, the vast majority of CEOs uh, view themselves as, um, you know, business builders and managers or leaders of companies, um, not as much as um, capital allocators. And yeah, for sure. And they're also, they tend not to be very good at capital allocation unless they really studied the topic and made it a priority. Um, in declining industries, I think capital allocation is the key. I mean, it's much more important than in growing industries where you can kind of, um, you know, reinvest in the business, hopefully at decent returns. I think in declining industries, um, you know, the reinvestment rate generally is uh, very, very low or negative. And so it's all about, um, you know, returning capital to shareholders as you realize that the business is uh, shrinking. And, uh, you know, that's just kind of not the DNA of most CEOs. That's a, that's a great point. And there's no, there's no doubt about that. I would argue that while you're 100% correct that growth covers up or hides a lot of sins, it's really just postponing that day of reckoning because, you know, misallocated capital is misallocated capital, right? And I, you know, this is a bit of a tangent and hopefully not too controversial to say, but for 10 years, the the basic economic policy of China was to just pump a gazillion dollars into infrastructure, right? And they were building massive infrastructure projects, massive housing projects that, you know, at least on the glass half empty, if not the outright skeptical or cynical side, were not great uses of capital, right? The economic case for building those projects was a little bit thin, but it made the growth, made the overall picture look quite good, right? And now that tide seems to have started to go out. The narrative seems to have turned hard and it's like, whoa, this is a big problem. What was happening here? And it's like, well, it was always happening, right? It was always either going to work out or be a problem. And now it's just the bills coming due. And I think the same is true of growth companies, um, because you're right. I mean, it's just you're forced to acknowledge the reality of it when the business is obviously in decline. But you have to be smart about it no matter where you are on that curve. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, I mean, that's kind of what the book um, The Outsiders is all about, right? That's um, true. Because yeah. if you look at the outsiders, they're not necessarily um, leaders of companies that have the best reinvestment opportunities. These are guys are, are you know <laughs> that that have managed to um, you know make that calculus and return capital, whether that's dividends or repurchases, uh, when that's a more attractive use of capital and. Um, so, you know, I think you can make a ton of money in declining industries. You basically can make whatever you're paying in terms of an earnings or free cash flow yield as long as um, that free cash flow isn't reinvested back in the business. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, it, so. it takes a unique character, too, to do that, though, because I, I'd imagine you need to have a lot of equity skin in the game. Typically, 
if you're managing a declining business, you're also managing your path to not having a job. So that's not something that people like very easily contemplate doing. You have to either be at a certain age, have certain like kinds of incentives geared toward being that kind of steward, but most people would try to manage their way into prolonging their job. <laughs> yeah, no, I look, I, you guys both raise a good point and it's hugely important. The psychological factors, the the human being element of it, Basically, no one wants to get a job or keep a job where it's in a declining industry because they feel like not only is it, you know, uh, like you said, you you might work yourself out of a job over time as the as the thing naturally declines, but it's just not cool. It doesn't sound fun, right? You're going to get lots of Dunder Mifflin jokes all the time, right? And and people are, it's a natural reaction. I totally get it. It's way more fun to be like, oh yeah, I work for this sexy startup that's, you know, growing 300% a year or something, right? I mean, I totally understand that. Maybe it's a nice resume piece to say I successfully managed the decline of this industry uh, for certain. Well, there is, yeah, there's some of those people too. I mean, they're not just turnaround and restructuring guys. You're right. I mean, there is kind of this little subsector of people that are, you know, kind of the caretakers of true wind down operations, but that tends to be more in the, in the vein of companies that got in trouble, they got into some sort of financial distress and they went into wind down for that reason. Whereas I think we're talking more about, you know, if you were the, you know, the division president or the CEO of Nedbox of, of Redbox or Netflix DVD, physical DVD business, you know, uh, that could have been a really cool job and could have created a ton of value. And just because it was done under Netflix, it would have been sent to a great purpose. But if you're the head of a standalone company that's in long-term decline, you know, that doesn't mean you, you can't be a productive, successful executive, right? I mean, and so this is actually something I want to ask you guys. If you were that CEO or if you were investing alongside that CEO, how should you think about dividends? How should you think about those ever important liquidating distributions? Because my point was to this company that I've been talking to was that, you know, I don't like regular recurring dividends because I think it ties you up mentally. It ties you up psychologically into thinking this has to continue and this has to probably grow a little bit, or it's going to be a negative signal. It's going to be a bad thing. And so I think the the special dividend, the special liquidating distribution is one of the most underused tools in capital allocation. And I was thrilled to see this company use it, even if only partially, because they are still paying a regular dividend. They are still paying or they are still doing stock repurchases as well. I mean, a, you know, a, a great example of it, a company that I think is supremely rational, uh, managed at just the highest level of quality you could ever hope for is Constellation Software in Canada. And, and Mark Leonard there has decided that he doesn't like share repurchases because he doesn't like the idea of buying out people at a discount. And, you know, I think he and most people would agree the stock has done enormously well, but it's rarely traded at a big discount. I'm not sure it's, it's, I was going to say it, that. Yeah. It's not yeah. like it's cheap. <laughs> no, exactly. And it's probably rarely, if ever, traded at a 20% discount to the bottom end of his range. Um, so that, that just is what it is. And you can't, you cannot do that, but they now pay a, a tiny regular dividend, which I would argue, you know, doesn't really do a whole lot. But they've been a very uh, smart user of of irregular special liquidating distributions. So he'll let cash pile up for a couple of years and then pay it out. And there's nothing wrong with that because his contention is a lot of the vertical market software businesses they buy 
are not necessarily in outright decline, or at least initially, some of them might be in decline now, uh, but in aggregate, they're not, but they're certainly not growing like crazy. But then they take the cash flow and they go buy other companies that are you know, attractively priced, well-positioned, offer good investment prospects, et cetera. And they do enormously well with that. And then they still have cash left over at the end of it. So, you know, I, I think that's just a supremely rational way to do it. And if if it ever got to the point where these little vertical market software businesses were, you know, actually dying, actually declining, I would trust them to do the right thing and to handle it quite rationally. You know, I think um, I've, I've, several times expressed this affinity for the European approach and style yeah. of dividends above Agreed. ours. Yep. You know, I think one way to approach it is to have a fair, not aggressive, regular dividend. I think that kind of aligns your interests and make sure you're expressing the right things about your intent on the business and then um, have a special dividend that when you know, a second dividend, which is like how much excess cash you have at the end of the year, sweep it out. Or if your shares are cheap, you know, you say, okay, this year we're going to not do that second special dividend. We're going to actually get into the market and, you know, tender for shares even. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that sort of behavior is, is a lot better and especially well-suited for that kind of situation. And I, I, I had seen this study several years ago and i don't know if i could easily recall where it was from or who it was but companies that do special dividends that are like um you know uh regular operating businesses so forget about declining ones companies that do special dividends outperform <laughs> i remember seeing that i can't prove it um you know i'm saying it here echoing off something i'd, I'd not seen very frequently but it almost makes sense intuitively that companies sure. who end up with more cash than they'd planned for and are really disciplined about giving it back uh, to shareholders instead of letting it pile up, instead of doing something stupid with it just because they have it and can, right? you know, it kind of gets to the same uh, idea about like people don't like to manage uh, the shrinkage of their business. You don't see many companies divest and become a lot smaller um, so I think that's interesting. I, I think it might be something that you start seeing maybe in like the commercial REIT space. Some of these companies could sell down their portfolios. They're trading well below their book value. If they could get anything close, you know, you start giving back some of that cash instead of recycling it into the landscape. Um, you know, I, maybe John, you want to address this, but I had one tangent I wanted to maybe push. I think it's funny that we've talked about declining businesses. We've mentioned Netflix and Redbox. But we haven't just talked in general about media as a declining business and what consequences that might have and what um, some of these companies, you know, certainly don't think of themselves as declining businesses. They're putting a lot of resources towards trying to prevent a decline. But then you also start seeing that there are different stakeholders whose interests come into play. You end up with something like the writer strike and very different realities that might face the business going forward than going backward. Um, any thoughts on like, you know, how, how you manage that tension between uh, are you or are you not declining and what stakeholders do or don't deserve to get um, some of the uh, fruits of that decline? Yeah, that's a tough one. Uh, I'm not sure I have uh, a great answer. I, I think, you know, generally, I'd say CEOs will kind of err on the side of we're not declining, um, you know, and I think you're going to st start seeing um, 
some businesses that haven't been thought of as declining businesses turn into declining businesses um, thanks to um, you know the um, development of AI and other technologies. I mean, some software businesses are going to turn into declining businesses. Right. Um, you know, but it's just a tough call because there are other businesses or industries that um, for a long time have looked like declining businesses, but then um, they end up actually sticking around much longer. I mean, you think of oil and gas or some others, um, there's still plenty of runway there, especially for smart operators uh, that are doing the right things. Um, so, you know, it's, um, you know, I, I'd say it depends on the industry. Uh, but, you know, generally, I think CEOs will overestimate uh, the prospects rather than be uh, totally realistic. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. And I, I think... So going back to your your comment, Elliot, about about dividends, um, I don't know about that study about paying special liquidating distributions being uh, those outperforming, but that would make total sense, right? Because it's relatively rare, I think. And if a company's thoughtful enough to do it, it means they've been putting more effort and brain power into doing it. So there's probably some significant correlation there with with investment returns that are going to outperform. So that makes total sense to me. Um, you know, and as to where companies should take this and where they should go, I mean, I think it just should be a, a, a bit of a, and we'll, we'll link to this in the show notes, but as far as I can tell, there has not been anything substantial written in this space lately. Again, this uh, HBR article was from 1983. Uh, what is this one? This was, yeah, based off of that, there was a book uh, that this company pointed me to that was similarly dusty and old. So it's just kind of shocking to me that this doesn't get more attention. Everybody, and I th again, I think it's just human nature, which is understandable, but everybody wants to focus on the fun stuff and the growth. And uh, they're really missing something by ignoring the the situation when when they inevitably are faced with a declining industry. Yeah, you know, the special dividend thing might be skewed by like, I'm pretty sure Costco is one of those companies that frequently paid, is paid. Yeah, that's true. They've paid special. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah, and true. it's funny to think of it as a liquidating dividend when it's really, you know, like we're so good, we don't need the capital kind well, of Well, so that's, well, that's what I was actually going to say is like, I, that's the one thing that bothers me about paying a, a significant regular dividend. And so I don't know, when you said, you, Elliot, you said you don't mind if someone pays a small or modest dividend, however you characterize it. And I would agree that's going to keep you from getting into any sort of big trouble in, in almost all scenarios. But then it kind of gets down to like, well, does it really matter? You know, like, does it really move the needle? Like, and, and where I get frustrated is if you're going to pay a regular dividend, you, you have to acknowledge explicitly that you're tying yourself to the mast and saying, I can't be trusted with this cash flow. I can't be trusted to allocate this capital. I'm going to pay it out every 90 days just because that's the best thing to do. Whereas I would say 98% of companies do it because they think it's going to be some sort of signal that they're a quality blue chip, stable, reputable company. And that's what their grandfather's investing investments did. And it's just this really bizarre, old fashioned thought process. Whereas I think the right way to think about it is if you're going to pay out some dividend every quarter, it's because you're generating more capital than you need every quarter and you're never going to wish for it back. And so again, in Mark Leonard's case at Constellation, 
yeah, he probably doesn't wish that he's ever had it back because his stock has never traded at a cheap level and he's got all the capital he's ever wanted to do acquisitions. So he may not ever want it back. But then what does he do? He still, you know, does the lion's share of his distributions via via special dividends, via special liquidating distributions, which is, again, just such a smarter way to do it. How many times have you seen companies pay a, a, a regular dividend that seems relatively modest over a period of, of one quarter or even one year, but then all of a sudden you wake up and three years later, they're like, oh man, I, I really wish we'd had that capital back or they go out and raise capital or they feel a little stretched or the balance sheet's looking a little shaky all of a sudden. And it's like, would it really have been so difficult or would it really have been a sin to say, we're not going to pay that out in a dividend. We're going to let the cash accumulate for, God forbid, 24 months or 36 months or some interminable period and then just make the decision as it comes along. I don't see why that's so difficult or so hard. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in a world without other constraints, that's definitely the optimal way. I think because of all these, like you know, quirks of human nature, it gets really hard to execute on that really well. And then I think there's one other uh, facet that comes into play, and that's specifically, I mean, there is a massive universe of investment capital that is tied to um, like dividend mandates yeah, where they yeah. it cannot be invested in companies who do not have a dividend. So I, I do think for some companies, so yeah, that, having that that's in place. That's the stuff that just drives me nuts because those are not quality shareholders. They don't stick around over the long term. It doesn't matter. The market is not that inefficient. If you're the company, if you're the CEO or the board, it should not matter. That should never come up in conversation. You shouldn't care at all about, quote unquote, attracting those shareholders. Who cares? It doesn't matter. You're going to have shareholders one way or another. You're going to get the valuation you deserve one way or another. And if you run the company well and allocate the capital intelligently, you will do just fine and you will get the shareholders you deserve. I I, can't, I will never forget the first time this came up very clear. This was probably 10 or 12 years ago. This company that was relatively new to the public markets that had been taken private and re-IPO'd. And they'd gotten through the first year or two and they said, you know, we really want to attract uh, these certain type of shareholders. And they mentioned this one large, reputable, well-known institutional shareholder that I won't name. They said, these guys are really pushing us to pay a big dividend. They really want us to pay a dividend. And, you know, they're a they're an 8% holder of the stock and we really want them to stick around. And it's like, okay, why? Like, what are they bringing that's so magical here? But that's, we'll get to that in a second. So what did this company do? They passed up both a really interesting acquisition at the time and a very large buyback at a very attractive price. I mean, this would have been a stock price of, you know, call it $20 a share, where within years, this, the company was very fairly revalued at three times that level. They <laughs> passed all that up to start a big, fat quarterly dividend. And do you know what the big 8% shareholder did? They blew uh, I'm out sure they their, sold it. Yeah. They blew out of their entire position six months later. And it just pissed me off so much because then there was no accountability for management. Like, okay, well, I told you this was likely to happen, that this was irrelevant at best. And then it happened and these guys are gone. So where are we at now? Oh, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's just so lazy and stupid. Like, it just doesn't matter. You don't need to do that to quote unquote, attract shareholders. And look, if you're the type of person that wants to live off a dividend income, that's great. But there's lots of ways to generate income. And there's lots of ways to generate income that's not double taxed. I do think one of the most effective arguments for that kind of behavior is there are certain kind of companies who may have acted very immaturely and 
by that I mean like their business hit a greater degree of maturity and they didn't grow up from like what got them there. Yeah, that's probably true. And authorizing a dividend is a good signal. It's a signal and it doesn't have to be big, but that we acknowledge we are at a different stage in our life cycle and we are going to behave accordingly. Um, because I do think you kind of need certain kinds of investors to buy into that uh, reality and that forward signal on behavior in order to give yourself time in the market to execute on that in the transitional phase. And I've seen it be like a fairly good thing for a couple companies. Um, I've also seen it be a pretty bad thing for others, but I do think that signal has real value. Um, and, and it's worthwhile when management has to build trust and credibility uh, in, in a forward looking way where it's just not possible without time playing out. So it buys you time. Yeah, but if we, and I agree, like there is some value to showing the market how you're going to behave. But if it's a signal that's done primarily for communication purposes rather than for economic purposes, and this is funny because when we, when I was talking to this little company, the commodity producer that I've mentioned several times, um, the one thing they said was like, you know, we actually kind of regret getting on the quarterly earnings call, the, the, the guidance treadmill right? Where we're going to issue quarterly results, have a call, issue guidance, update guidance. Like it's kind of a bad idea. And I'm like, yeah, it's it's often a bad idea. <laughs> you should have just ripped the bandaid off and not done it when you did. But you know, they got spun off out of, out of a bigger company and they had lots of advisors in their ear and whatnot. But anyway, what I said was, and they seemed receptive to it was, if you're concerned about the communication and concerned about the signaling effect, just write about it and say what it is that you're going to do and give the reasons for what you're going to do and put it on your investor relations website and put it in an 8K and answer questions honestly and transparently as they come in. And guess what? You're going to build credibility with investors and you're going to attract those so-called quality shareholders that you want. And you know who's been awesome at doing that and has one of the best corporate governance and investor relations programs I've ever seen in my life? Berkshire. Well, yes, but they don't count because they're so special. Netflix, right? Just yep. what we were just talking about, right? With the stupid declining DVD rental business. I mean, the way Netflix has structured and executed on their investor relations program, the, the way they handle governance issues, both internally and externally, and the way they allocate capital is awesome. It's a, it's a gold template for anyone else to follow. And it's not, it's not a coincidence that they've been so successful. Right. And it's been they have a great base of shareholders and they've been an enormously successful company in a symbiotic reinforcing relationship because of it. And it's not that hard. What what's hard is running the business. What's hard is setting an organizational, you know, path, like plotting the strategy for the next five and ten years and then going out and doing it. That's hard. This part should be the easy part. And yet it seems to get screwed up all the time. I've uh, felt Netflix communication on all fronts has been pretty stellar. Like the engagement from short sellers in yeah. Netflix <laughs> with Whitney Tilson yeah. in the past, I thought Reed Hastings like is is the template for how to handle that. Hundred um, percent. I've always, I I've thought, told a million. Ahead, sorry, sorry to interrupt, but a million CEOs like if someone comes at you and publicly shorts your stock, there's two right answers. There's only two ways you can respond to that correctly. One is to just not respond because who cares? It's, it's you know, it, it's perfectly legitimate. It's valid. Like they can do whatever they want. The other one is to write back and say, well, okay, you know, 
You're, you're welcome to short our stock, but here's why you might be wrong. Here's what you might be missing. A factual, even-headed, cool response, and that's all there is. And that's exactly what Reed Hastings did. He responded. He's like, you know, here, here's how we see it. Here's what we're trying to do. Not, you know, an ad hominem attack. Like when a CEO comes back to a short seller with an ad hominem attack and says, you're you're biased by your incentives and, you know, you're a bad person and all this stuff. I mean, that is a red flag. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Exactly. No bigger red flag. And then the other uh, letter situation that I thought Reed Hastings handled incredibly well is, you know, there were two junctures where he made big mistakes along the way. Yeah. And he was so honest and transparent about them. The Quickster yep. debacle. And, yep. you know, I think it was they'd repurchased some shares to have to issue it lower um, around 2011 or so. That's right. Yeah. And um, he. I, I think not enough investors acknowledge that if a company's around long enough, there are going to be some pretty big mistakes. Yep. And it's more about how management handles them and bounces back from them than it is about the consequences of the mistake in some way. As long, as long, obviously, as long as you don't destroy the freaking business. Uh, but, you know, companies are, I think mistakes make you more resilient for the future. And I had wished several management teams were a little more honest about mistakes because if you acknowledge them, that's part one of getting to a better path. And if you acknowledge them and speak like very candidly about it, it's part two of building a much better relationship with your own shareholders who see you as human, who see you as someone who's thoughtful, even in the face of adversity. And I wish, uh, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity for that right now that hasn't exactly been taken advantage of by some management teams. Yeah, no, and you know what? You, you're uh, you're exactly correct to bring up the Quickster debacle, which I should have mentioned because it's a great point that you just raised, which is we're we're sitting here praising Netflix for being an exemplar of a well-managed company, a thoughtful company, great capital allocation, great communications, great governance, great everything, and no less a company than Netflix screwed up a declining industry situation by doing this, you know, harebrained quickster idea, which was to basically spin off the physical DVD part and charge for it separately. And it was a disaster and people hated it. And management had the humility to eat humble pie and reverse course before it was too late because that could have been a total disaster. And that's the difference between an absolute mess like Bed Bath & Beyond or Sears Holdings and a great success, right? Yeah, they never reverse course on bad ideas. It's a good no. point. And it's very yeah. easy to make the hindsight narrative sound like, oh my God, look at the look at how awesome Netflix was. But right. you know, there were like some uh, the stock was down like 70% uh oh, yeah. during that epic. Like it's For not sure. nearly as simple as everything was was all roses in the end of the day. Yep. No, for sure. Yeah, there's always going to be problems. There's always going to be challenges and mistakes that come along. And, you know, they, that's what I mean. Like I, in a declining business, they can get magnified, right? They can definitely get exacerbated and and really sink the sink the ship. And yeah, I mean, that that's a great alternative history. You know, the, the narrative that Netflix was preordained for success, if the quickster thing had gone through or if management hadn't been quite so shrewd about governance and capital allocation and communication, whatever. I mean, there's absolutely a scenario where they would have ceded their lead or never gotten to the promised land and built this great business. So true. 
All right. Well, uh, on that note, I think we'll wrap it up. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Elliot and Phil, and thanks everyone for listening. Goodbye for now.